This is Outside the Vines, a podcast fusing three big names from the world of sports, their love of wine, and their thirst for sports. All right, let's get to it. Here are your hosts of Outside the Vines, Ted Robinson, Glenn Parker, and Ashley Adamson. Well, here is Rich Aurelia, 15-year Major League shortstop. Although, I can't remember. You played first base at point. I forgot that, Richie. Near the end of your career? You know what? We all get old, and we're not as quick as we once <laughs> used to be. So, uh, yeah, I started uh, – I taught myself to play all the other infield positions uh, probably about the last five years of my career. Yeah. Uh, 275 career average, silver slugger, all-star, a brilliant year, which is the 20th anniversary of. We're going to get to that a little bit later. But here's the point, Rich, to where we start. You're a kid from Brooklyn. I'm a kid originally from Queens. Ash is from the, the Blue Mountains of Colorado. We never thought all the years that, that I knew you that this would be what we'd be doing, that we'd be talking about you in the wine business. How the heck did well, this happen? You know, one, I, w- I was like totally floored when you texted me and I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll do this with you guys. Um, you know, listen, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, Italian, mostly Italian background. I'm 50% Italian, but Sicilian. So we, that's in the U S we're, we're Italian. So, um, and I grew up in an Italian neighborhood and when my, my mom and dad, we were like lower middle class, they both worked. And I was basically kind of raised by my next door neighbor as my babysitter when I was young. Um, and she was straight off the boat from Naples. Um, so my, my upbringing in Brooklyn, in her basement, a lot of it entailed you know, just like homemade Sunday tomato sauce for like the whole year, homemade pasta. Everything was homemade. And then they also did like uh, homemade like jug wine in the basement. And granted, I never tried it when I was that age, but I had a background in like knowing what it was. And then, you know, you fast forward to having a career – 11 out of 15 years with the Giants in San Francisco um, and just being able to have the access to so many restaurants and so many wine lists in that city and being so close to wine country in Napa, Sonoma. Um, pretty early on in my career, I kind of I took a liking to red wine. And it never really stopped from that point on. I just tried to keep learning more and more and more and visit more and more and more up to Napa and Sonoma. Uh, so yeah, it's been a really weird ride, but um, I'll, I'll tell you what, right now I wouldn't trade it for anything. So Rich, I got to ask you, what what is the origin story? I mean, you kind of told us how, you know, it started with jug wine in the basement uh, in Brooklyn, New York, and, and now here you are at Red Stitch. Uh, we're going to talk about the wine specifically here in a minute that uh, we're drinking tonight, but how would you describe the origin story of Red Stitch, your winery? Well, I, I can I can go back to just the origin of like when I really like took wine seriously because that's I think when it really started. Um, again, and, and Ted knows this because he covered me at the time. But uh, most most of the guys lived down in South Bay in San Francisco when we were playing at Candlestick Park. I did one year in 1996. And then 1997, I said, you know what? I just want to live in the city. I'm a city guy, so live downtown ton of day games of candlesticks so after the day games you know try a different restaurant every i mean there, there's so many that you could try with great wine lists so that's when i really started getting into drinking wine and then uh i live in phoenix in the off season so one of my neighbors in phoenix just had my next door neighbor actually had a huge wine cellar huge and we'd go we, we became really good friends and i'd go over there and he's like all right let's drink some wine and I remember the first wine that I really like fell in love with was a, a, a Napa Valley Cabernet. Uh, it was a David Arthur Elevation 1147. And it was uh, uh, a hilltop vineyard, um, just 1997 vintage. And I just fell in love with it. And at that point, I was like, wow, I just tasted this. This thing, this is awesome. I need to learn more about Napa Valley Cabernets and this and that. And, and that's when I really started diving into the knowledge of different wines and boutique wineries. But then fast forward to 2007, I signed back with the Giants after I left as a free agent. 
uh, after the 2003 season. And at my press conference, it was uh, to sign back. This was after I had spent eight years there prior. It was myself and Dave Roberts uh, at our press conference. And Dave and I played against each other for years. Hated each other. And, I, and he'll tell you the same thing. Hated each other. Dave's like one of the nicest guys in the world. And he would always get to second base and say hi to me. And I'd always just like give him the one of those, like a head, head nod. Uh, but he was a Dodger and I was a yeah. giant. So it, it didn't, you know, didn't go really well. But um, when we did our press conference together, we both realized that we were both like wine nerds and crazy about wine. So that like was our connection right away. Um, so our love of wine together as a group started with our press conference. And, you know, unfortunately, moving forward, Dave had to retire. I think midway through his contract with an injury and he had been home for maybe a few weeks and he called me and he said, Hey, I'm, I'm going crazy here because, you know, I need to do, he said, I need to do something in wine. What should I do? And I didn't hear it at first the right way. I said, yeah, I'm in. And he said, I need to do something in wine. And I'm like, yeah, I'm in. He's like, uh, okay, uh, what should we do? And so we, we kicked around some ideas and then we just decided with a friend of ours from, you know, the city or the partner, John, um, we just decided, you know what, why don't we just make our own boutique Cabernet? And that's how it started. It just started with different ideas of, you know, maybe we do a, a, a we'll buy a couple limos and do like tours for people because of connections we had to set up tastings. But then we decided that that really gives us no fulfillment. Like it doesn't, you know, really do anything for us as far as like being like, oh, we did that, you know, or whatever. Um, and then we talked about a retail shop and and then we just decided let's just kick in some cash and let's get a, a lawyer to do the legal side of it. And let's find a winemaker and then let's, uh, you know, dive into this. And that's how it pretty much got started in 2007. Is it, but you see, in the root in that story, Richie, and, and going back to your time, your first go around with the Giants, I mean, it, it astounded me when I first came to work for the Giants, the connection between baseball and wine. And, yeah. and, and we just had Damon Heward and Drew Bledsoe on, and the football route is incredibly strong, which I didn't know nearly as much about. But I know how many wine, and I'll use your term, nerds, yeah, that were in your clubhouse – when you were playing the first time with the Giants? Oh, there were a bunch of us. Um, you know, I, I think as I moved forward in my career, I mean, 95, I got called up. 96 was a rough year for the team. And then 97, we made some trades. We got some people over there. And I remember, like, we'd go on the road, Ted, and it would be, you know, we'd get into a city, and it was like myself, Sean Estes, Rob Nen, Bill Miller, J.T. Snow, that was like our group and everybody enjoyed wine. So it was like we'd find a steakhouse or, you know, a really nice restaurant with a good wine list. And, and we really would enjoy that. And I think that was part of the fun of being on that team was a lot of guys from all over the country uh, kind of came together in one spot and realized what a great region we were in for that for wine. And we, and we pretty much took advantage of it. We would take a bunch of day trips on off days up to wine country. And like, we, we rent a bus or a van and just like everybody would go up together. Um, so yeah, it was a, you know, I was very fortunate. I don't know if I'd have this same, I don't know if I'd be where I am today if I would have never gotten traded from the Texas Rangers, because I may have never been exposed to such great food and wine in the city of San Francisco if I'd never got traded there. You'd be running a barbecue pit. You kidding me? No, I'd be, yeah, I'd be smoking some brisket outside with, <laughs> with a beer or some bourbon. <laughs> uh, I read an article, Rich, when you, you said something about, you know, we don't want to be the baseball guys who make wine. We want Red Stitch to be good wine and, and our wine, and it obviously is. And I want to ask you about these two bottles we're drinking here in one second. But before we get into that, I'm curious, has it been hard to sort of shed the stereotypical Oh, you're an ex-jock throwing your name behind a wine without much involvement. I mean, was what was the reaction when when you and Dave first got into the winemaking business? Well, it, it was actually a conversation that we had, like before we actually had our 
our label name or a brand name or release, you know, like we, we actually had this conversation and it went exactly that way. We're like, listen, there's so many athletes that have a brand and a label and we don't want to be, you know, and listen, Dave, Dave had one in his career, had one of the most memorable moments in baseball history by stealing second base against the Yankees in the ALCS, which was a, an unbelievable moment. You know, I was a, I was a decent player, you know, I'm not a hall of fame player, but I had a decent career. Uh, so it's not like our names are up there with some of these athletes who have labels. Um, but we didn't want to, we didn't want to leverage it, it, it. There are pros and cons. You can leverage what you did, but at the same point, you don't want to leverage it too much. Um, so we knew we had to really produce a great product year in, year out until we proved ourselves. Um, so that's what we said. Like, we don't want to be the baseball guys that make wine. We want to be vintners that also play baseball in the past. And I think after about four or five years with our Cabernet, um, I think we kind of shed that a little bit where, of course, we still have fans of baseball, whether it be now the Dodgers or the Giants or just baseball fans in general uh, that, that purchase our wine. But I think now we're getting into the area of, you know, enophiles, people that love wine are buying our wine that we don't even know. And we're getting emails from them saying, oh, you know, what a great product you guys have. Thank you for doing this. And um, so I think now, God, this is 14 years later after the inception of Red Stitch. I think we've gotten to that point. And I think a key component of how we've been able to stay there is the fact that we've grown really slowly. And it's, it's, you know, we've done that on purpose in a sense of, you know, we could throw whatever many dollars to increase production to this, that, blah, blah, blah. But we're really happy with the small increases we do every year to our, 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 you know, our vintages and different varietals um, where we feel really comfortable with the place we're in right now. And I think we've really like, I don't want to say shed that stigma because I don't know if we ever really had it. It, it helped us a lot in the beginning. I'm not going to lie, but I think moving forward now, we've gotten to a point where I think people respect the product that we put out and they always know we're going to put out a product that is going to be, um, you know, received very well by them. And, um, you know, and again, again, it's, it's a weird industry because we've also tried to stay competitively priced and that's hard to do with the wine industry with, with labor and grape costs and everything like that. But we try and do the best we can. And, uh, so that's what you were asking about that article you read. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, we don't want to be the wine guys that make wine. We want to be vintners and like, oh, those guys were pretty good ball players. Yeah. How, how big, what's the production right now, Richie? On, on an average year, um, between Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Cabernet, anywhere between 1,750 cases and 2,000 cases. Um, unfortunately, in 2020, because of the fires, uh, we lost all of our Pinot Noir production because of smoke uh, damage to the grapes. So we will not have a 2020 vintage for Pinot Noir. We did get Chardonnay in. Uh, we did get Cabernet in. Um, but um, normally it's right in that range of 1750 to 2000 Yeah. How many could you sell? If you, if you made Unlimited, how much could you sell? Oh, I, I, you know, I've never even gone down that path because we always sell what we get yeah. and what we make. So we always, I mean, I think the biggest increase we ever had production wise was when we added um, a Pinot Noir and a Chardonnay. I think that was in tw- 2012 or in 13. Um, and then the production, like, I mean, we doubled our production because we added another varietal. We added another um, Pinot Noir, single vineyard. Um, but you know, we do, we separate the releases, the cabs always in September and the Chardonnay and the Pinot are always in late February, early March. Um, so we try and space it out, uh, where we, we maximize our, um, selling power to our, uh, direct to consumer base. 
Well, now that our producer, Adam Gordon, knows about your Pinot Noir, I don't think you ever have to worry about it. Thanks, Adam. You can make any any number of of cases of Pinot Noir and it's going to sell out. Uh, So let's talk about this. You you sent us a phenomenal Pinot, uh, Sobranius Vineyard, 2018 it is, Santa Lucia Highlands. Uh, You said there's a good story behind this Pinot, so lay it on us. Well, we, we started out as cab lovers, so that's what we wanted to produce. We wanted to be a boutique Cabernet producer. Our first four years of Cabernet were just 150 cases. So fast forward to 2011, probably midsummer, and I had become friends with, um, and Ted knows him, a gentleman uh, named Dan Costa. And he started Costa Brown Winery in 1997 with his partner, Michael Brown, out of a garage, basically. They were they were servers at a restaurant in Santa Rosa, and they pooled their tips till they could buy a used barrel, a ton of grapes, and a used press machine. Next thing you know, fast forward, they're like the, the boutique Pinot Noir in the whole world. They get wine of the year and wine spectator, like in 2011. So Dan and I became really good friends. We actually met when I was still playing. Dave and I met him. We were still playing ball at a charity event in Phoenix. And he looked at us and he's like, oh, my God, there's Rich Rillia and Dave, Dave Roberts. And we looked at him. We're like, oh, my God, there's Dan Costa. So uh, Dan's become a really good friend. So that summer in 2011, Dan and I had been friends for a while. And he's call, I get a cell phone call from him. And he's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing, just hanging out. And. He's like, hey, I'm in a pickup truck down in Santa Lucia Highlands. And I'm like, where is that? And he goes, oh, it's like 30 miles east of Carmel and Pebble Beach. It's inland. It's like Gonzalez, like Salinas area. He goes, I'm with Gary Francione and Gary Pisoni. And they have some Pinot Noir. They want to know if you want to buy some Pinot Noir. And I'm like, uh, can I call you back in 10 minutes? Let me call my partners and see what what they say. And I called John and I called Dave and they were like, yeah, we know those names, Pizzoni and Francioni. They're two of the, they're two of the best grape growers in California. Um, so we took on this Sobranes vineyard, which was a, it was a young vineyard. I think maybe 2009 or 10 was the first year that it actually yielded fruit. So we kind of got in on the ground floor with these guys with this vineyard. And uh, again, it's Santa Lucia Highlands. It is at one point every year in the U.S., it's the vegetable capital of the world, but in the valley. And on the bench on the highlands, which is on the mountainside, they grow grapes. And that's where the, the vines grow and they, and they produce uh, all their grapes. So uh, we got in on that vineyard right out of the gate just through Dan Costa calling me from the back of a pickup truck saying, do you want grapes? And now we've, since that point, we've continued to produce the Sobranas, uh Pinot Noir. We did a Sierra Mar Pinot Noir, which was another vineyard of theirs, three miles down the road, but a higher elevation. And then we did that for a few years. And then we started a Chardonnay from that same vineyard, Sierra Mar in 2013, that we still make today, which is probably right now one of my favorite wines that we do because it's so much fun and then we moved out of the sierra mar vineyard to go to one of uh gary francione's it's probably the biggest named vineyard he has down there it's called rosella's uh and it's named after his wife but that's like that's one of the vineyards down there that everybody knows when they see a santa lucia highlands wine they want a rosella's pinot noir and we moved into there in 2018 so we have two vintages of that under our belt. But that region, it's, you know, you, we started this question with like, there's a story behind it. But this region, we tried a bunch of wines from down there and it lends itself more to a Burgundian style of Burgundy than a Sonoma or Russian River. Uh, it has a different, just, it has different terroir. It has different mouthfeel. It has a different nose um where i think it's it exudes more um dark fruit like dark red and blue fruit than a sonoma coast to me is more like a lighter red fruit um and a little more uh you know feminine but um we love that region 
that's why we've continued producing these wines through all these years. That's a great, that's a great story. And by the way, we should say, cause you just gave, we're going to get Dan to come on this pod yes. too, but Dan is now doing another, his own yes. wine again called mm -hmm. Alden Ali, uh, A-L-L-I. Uh, and it's an outstanding yeah. Pinot. And he uh, uh, he sold Costa Costa Brown to uh, Duckhorn. I think was the latest one. one. They've sold it like three times. He's, Duckhorn. They've done yeah. pretty well. <laughs> done pretty well for themselves. Yeah. So so is Pinot because and I'm glad Ash brought it up because it's perfect. Is is, P, is Pinot really taking root in California now? I think so. I I think you know. I'll yeah. say this. You know, Napa Cab. There's always going to be a market for Napa Cab. It's just. Mm -hmm. It's hard because it's such a high-priced varietal of wine out of Napa, especially if it's like a single vineyard wine. And don't get me wrong. I love it. I love making Cabernet. It's our flagship wine. It's the first one we did. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not cheap. And whether it be, you know, grape costs or, you know, price per ton and, you know, it, it's just not cheap. I mean – Pinot Noir is probably a harder grape to, you know, wrap your head around as a winemaker and produce because it's very fragile. Uh, but if it's grown in the right region and you have the white wine, right winemaker and the right terroir, um, you know, it, it really is a more approachable um, red wine to drink than a Cabernet. I mean, a Cabernet sometimes it, you know, it's hard to sit down with two people and, you know, just drink. Cabernet and down a whole bottle of it, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you, I, you, you I wanna, personally you wanna, don't have that problem, but I, I well, imagine that some people do. So. I, I don't either, <laughs> but I'm just saying this to I have empathy the average for wine drinker. Yeah. But, um, you know, yeah. but Pinot Noir I'm glad you said but that. But Pinot Noir is, you know, it's an easier drinking wine and yeah. um, it's a little more on the feminine side. And I think that's why I think for our portfolio that we have the Napa Cab, we have the two, uh, Pinot Noir from Santa Lucia. We actually added a Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir in 18 also just to like kind of change it up a little bit and the Chardonnay. Um, you know, I think we're, we're, you know, poised in a good position to like do wine dinners. That's why we did Chardonnay. Like, so we can do a rounded out wine dinner of four or five courses. Yeah. So, um, but it's, it's an exciting industry. I know there's a lot of turmoil going on right now with fires and, um, great costs and labor stuff, but you know, I still really, really enjoy it. And it's, it's given me the opportunity to meet some great people and do some really great philanthropic work. Yeah, man, the Pinot and, and for anybody who's watching, if you're, if you're watching this, you obviously love wine. Um, I'm, I'm a huge Pinot drinker. So I got two bottles of your Sobranus. This is when I was telling mm -hmm. Adam Gordon that I, we should get Richie on the show. I sent one bottle up to Adam and I think, what do you order? Six <laughs> cases or something? He fell in love with it. Well, He's a shareholder. Well, I'll now. tell you what, that Sobranus vineyard is probably, you know, cause here's the difference. Our Cabernet is not a single vineyard Cabernet. So our cab program is totally different from the other two programs with Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. The Cabernet is a program where we have a choice every year of picking from our winemakers, vineyard management company, um, picking grapes from different vineyards pretty much every year and picking the best of the best and seeing what we like. So it's not a state. It's not um, you know single vineyard. It's a blend. Um but we always seem to roll within the same vineyard for the majority of that blend. The Pinot Noir and the Chardonnay, they're all single vineyards. So you get what you get. I mean, we have the same blocks in the rows every year. Um, but the Sobranes for us has been the most consistent wine that we've made from 2011 through 2018 or 19, which is the current release. Uh, it's been the most consistent where as a group, you could put that bottle with 10 other bottles in front of us and we'll taste it. We know that that's our Sobranus because it's been that consistent over the years with its body, with its color, with its nose and its flavor profile that there's no, there, there's no doubt in our minds of, of what our Sobranus is. Um, and that's why 
we've continued to to move with this vineyard and you know we we've had great acclaim from this we've had really nice scores from it um and our our dtc customer base seems to love it so this is where ashley comes in because ashley is our <laughs> expert wine consumer <laughs> So is that Ash? Do you have, have Pinot? Both. Is that what you have, have in your? So I'm doing the Pinot and the Cabernet, but I, I will say both. I actually, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Cabernet. If I could drink one thing the rest of my life, it would be probably an Napa Cab. So I want to ask you about this Cabernet that that we're drinking here because it's the 20. You're gonna make me open it, aren't you? Look. Yeah, you're gonna make me open it right <laughs> I'm now, gonna make so you I can open taste it. it with you. Yeah, do All it right. for the show. Do it for the show. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, we it's okay. It won't go to waste. Well, while I you're opening that, though, I got to ask you because that was another thing I, I saw. It. So it's it's ninety seven percent cab and then three percent Malbec, and and you had talked about you know and something I had read about the inclusion of Malbec in yeah. your flagship Cabernet. Why why that was important? So if you could share a little bit of that, I thought that was pretty interesting. So, I mean, you guys are wine guys. You know that, you know, to be considered a full Cabernet or whatever varietal it is, you need to have 75% of that main varietal. Um, so we go back to the story of how this project started with Dave Roberts and my buddy John Mysick and his wife, Noel. Um, so Dave and I were playing. This was 2007, I think. And... Dave knew this winemaker, Pinot Noir winemaker from a winery called Sojourn. Uh, his name's Eric Bradley, and he makes phenomenal Pinot Noir. I still buy it to this day. Every year I buy it and have it sent to my house. Um, and John knew this same winemaker. So it was weird. Like I never met John. I knew Dave. Dave never met John, but they knew Eric together. So we we started this thing where we would do these blind tastings after a day game at somebody's house or at a restaurant. And the first one we did, so Eric was like the moderator, this winemaker was the moderator of this because mm -hmm. he knew Dave and he knew John. And he's like, okay, we're gonna do it at the Mysick's house in Noe Valley. And everybody has to bring a Malbec over $50 and a Malbec under $25. And we're gonna brown paper bag them and taste them and see what we come up with. So that we go to the Mysick's house. It's the first time we met John and Noel on 2007 uh we do this tasting and we had a blast we all like hit it off like we knew each other forever um so we fast forward to like dave in 08 saying hey I, I need to like step away from the game i need to do something in wine me i stuck my foot in the door and said yeah i'm in with you even though you might not have wanted me but uh <laughs> so then we said you know john and noel would be a great addition to this group uh to our ownership group and then we started talking about our Malbec tasting. And when we kind of came to terms with the winemaker we were going to use, our winemaker, Rolando Herrera, who Ted, you know, I think from some Niner events in the past, um, his labels, Mi Sueño. Um, he used to run Paul Hobbs's Argentinian Malbec project down in Argentina. And he learned how to grow great Malbec in Napa. So our idea was, since we all met tasting Malbec, why don't we try and always put at least 1% Malbec in every Cabernet that we make? So like the Cabernet you're tasting, you said it was 97 and three or whatever, you know, I, so it could be 1% one year. It was 5% one year. It, it, it varies based off vintage because of taste and mouthfeel and, and what it adds to the palate for Cabernet. So that's how we ended up adding Malbec to the Cabernet every year and we've done it since 07. So we've, you know, we've kept true to that of always adding some Malbec. What does the Malbec do? What do you think it does? I think the Malbec adds a little, a uh, little deeper purple color to the wine. I think it adds a little body to it. Um, uh, and yeah. it adds a little, I'm, I'm, trying to describe the flavor profile that it adds a little bit. Um, it gives it a little bite where it may not be as oaky or caramely, you know, like, like the, the, you know, when they, when they toast the barrels, um, you know, that's how all the oak flavors come out from the sugars that are coming out of it, but it, yeah. it, it tames it a little bit. 
So, um, and I've always told Rolando with his label, uh, my favorite wine that he makes, he makes a single vineyard Malbec. And I'm like, that's my favorite wine that you make because it's just so good. And for the price point that you sell it for, I'm like, I'll drink that all day. Uh, and that's what I, so, so all the people who watch this and you go out to dinners, whatever, you never really go wrong on a wine list with a Malbec because one, they're pretty, they're pretty, you know, competitively priced. Like they're, they're priced pretty well in restaurants and you're never going to go wrong with a Malbec, like where you can see some Cabernets in restaurants, like get way up there. Malbec's never going to disappoint you. So that's just my tip for your restaurant that's goers. Or that's that's a great tip. That is, I, I was weird because I, my one and only time in South America in my life was for the Olympics in Rio, and you just weren't sure what was going to be yeah. safe and what was going to be wise, and we ended up having Malbec because it's obviously oh, it's huge. a huge grape in South America, but we ended up having pure Malbecs. I think every night it was, and it was, you said it was reasonably and priced. They're great. And they go with really everything. Good. It's so yeah. great. But, you know, Ashley, yes, I opened this, I poured it in my glass. So this is our 2016. Again, like yeah. with Cabernet and Napa, there was such a run on great vintages. I mean, you know, 12 was a great vintage, 13, 14, 15, 16. I mean, they were just all great vintages and the weather just allows that to happen up there. Um, so I'm getting, getting a lot of leather on the nose, a lot of leather notes, mm -hmm. a lot of dark, like dark red cherry notes. Yeah. It's just, Rich, it's I gotta ask deep, you as, as you're describing this wine, because it's a, I mean, I have so many friends, we live in San Francisco, I have so many friends who love wine, and we do laugh a lot about like the way that people describe wine and the verbiage that people use, like the wine speak. Is that, How did you learn how to describe, like was did it come naturally? Was it something that you just started tasting wine and knew right away? Oh, yeah. these are this flavors, this is that. Like how did you learn sort of the wine verbiage and the wine speak? Yeah. I kind of – well, first of all, I'm going to say this, Ashley, and it's not because you brought the question up. But historically, women have way better palates than men. Yeah. It's just, well, that's not it's true a on proven this podcast, but I, I – yeah. It, it's a proven fact, but I mean like the well, women we have, have better, better taste palate. than men in general, just period. Yeah, yeah. yeah probably. <laughs> I will definitely agree with that. Um, but you know, it, it's a matter of – and I'll tell you this. Early on in my wine-loving days – I can't remember who I ordered it from, but there was a, uh, a company that sold like this wooden box that it was like a wine tasting kit, but it had like these little vials of, I don't know what it was, but like you can like poke it or scratch it and smell what like the, the aroma was of certain, you know, there was a blueberry, there was a dark chocolate, there was a, you know, whatever, whatever it, it, it covered the whole gamut. So I did that for a while and I was like, well, okay, well it, that just smells like whatever. So when I do it now, I try and just refer it to tastes that I know, like, listen, I, I'll tell you this, whoever says forest floor, I don't know what the heck that smells like or tastes like. I mean, I mean, what, seriously, or wet slate or, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what, what am I going to, when it rains, I'm going to go lick a piece of slate on it. I don't know. So I try and. This is the, Bro this this is is the, the Brooklyn, Brooklyn coming out. I told if you, you told me it, like, if it, it tastes like hydrant water, Ted, I'd be like, oh yeah, I know what that tastes like. Cause when I was a kid, they just turned a hydrant on. But now it's like, I try and refer to things that I've tasted before. So like, you know, there, there's a certain wine that I love. It's another Napa Cabernet that to me, like, Every time I've tasted it, every vintage, I get blueberry muffin. It's like blueberry muffin, boom, right on my palate. And I'm like, that's blueberry muffin. Yeah. I know exactly what it is. I know exactly what wine it is. But when I taste our own wine, I mean, we've gotten to a point with our winemaker where Rolando really knows our palate and what we want in a wine. So 
as we progress from 07 through these years, like we're pretty consistent, I think, with our flavor profile. I mean, this one you'll get, you know, you get a little licorice on the nose, a little anise um, and on the palate, but you get a lot of like dark, you know, blueberry, some tobacco. Mm -hmm. um, and this is actually a, I don't want to say, we, we've made some pretty big, bold Cabernets that like you can sit down for years. Um, this 16 is pretty approachable right now. Uh, it, it's in a really good, it's in a really good place right now where, you know, I'm a foodie too. So like, I know exactly what I would love to cook with this and what I would so love to have. Tell us what you would cook with this. Um, I'd love to have a grilled like Cajun ribeye. Boneless or bone in, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, um, I also think it would go really good with like a rack of lamb. Mm. Um, I've said I've got I still have your I have your Sobranus Pinot with me, and that's where yeah. I'm going. Butterfly, yeah, leg of and lamb. that's a funny thing because like I got these Definitely. two wines sitting next to each other, and of course you could tell which is Pinot. It's a lighter bodied. I mean, it's but the Pinot could stand up to lamb. And, and like uh, a duck, any kind of duck, like a duck confit with yeah. the Pinot Noir, we phenomenal. And it's funny because I did I did a pod, or I did an Instagram live uh, last year with one of our releases from uh, the Sobranas, and Dave and I did it together, which was pretty fun with our customer base or our DTC customers, and our. Wine, our grape grower, Gary Francioni, was on, on watching us. And I said, you know what, Dave? I said, I got to tell you, man. I said, I would love a carne asada taco, like out of a food truck with this Sobranas right now. And I wasn't even off the area. And Gary texted me. He's like, he goes, you read my mind. He goes, carne asada taco, whatever, blah, 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 with that wine would be fantastic. And, um, so that's like that's another part of the wine industry that I love is because I love to cook and I'm very creative when I cook and I love to try different things. So I try to pair different foods with our wines and I really, really like that's kind of become my hobby, especially when I'm up at the house in Sonoma because I, I have my outdoor kitchen there and I could pretty much kind of do whatever I want up there, which is great. Yes. I, I got to yeah. ask you, okay, so Red Stitch, the name, and then also this bottle is very special. Can you walk us through A, a the name, and B, for someone who yeah. can actually hold a bottle in their hand, what's what's so awesome about it? Yeah, so the name, uh, when we came up with this idea, um, we did not um, – sorry, somebody's at my doorbell. Ring That's my doorbell. the case. Oh, well, <laughs> I don't go. know if you heard that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Might be Adam um, Gordon. Yeah. Um, so um, the name, we, we, we went back and forth with names here and there, um, given our own ideas. Try, we hired like a graphic designer to come up with a label. We did this, we did that. And nothing was working. Like nothing was coming up like anything we liked. So actually Dave's brother-in-law came up with the name Red Stitch because he's like, you know what? It's It's simple enough that if people don't know you guys, they won't know what it really means, which is the stitching on a baseball. Um, but if people do know you, they'll know exactly what it means. So we were like, you know what? That's a pretty good idea. So then we basically, we had the name and then we came up with, you know, we tried to get another designer in to come up with a label. And, you know, Ashley, you mentioned it, like the bottle, um, I'm trying to see, like, it, it's probably, it's not easy to see, but, you know, our, I think our label is kind of classic. It's not going to go by the wayside. Um, we think it's classy. If you see on the S on the label, there's three dashes at the end of the stitch, which represents the three families that are involved in Red Stitch. And then, again, going back to your question of the article about not being a baseball guy who make wine. You know, why would we, you know, be like, not let's not put a baseball on a label. 
because that's what everybody expects. So our little homage to our career and what gave us the opportunity to do this was on our back label. If you hold it up to the light the right way, I don't know if people could see right here. I think they can. There's like a two seam like of a baseball, mm -hmm. like right here coming yeah. across the label. So if it's held up to the light the right way, you can see it. And I think when we tell too, people that, yeah, you can feel it too because it's embossed, so it's raised up. But it's not colored. It's not whatever. Um, but I think that's our little homage to our post or our pre-careers that gave us the opportunity to get into wine and, and pursue this second career for definitely me. Dave's got a second career going the other way with uh, <laughs> managing a team. Um, but, you know, it, it's been fun throughout. You know, I do a ton of we do a ton of stuff with the Dodgers. We do a ton of stuff with the Giants. Um, and when we first started making our, we made large format etched bottles like that we release at Christmas. We don't do it anymore, but in the beginning we would etch the stitches on the back of the bottle. Cool. And that was really kind of cool, but, um, it ended up being too hard to do for the etchers. So we had to drop that. But, um, again, I think we have a nice package. We have a good product. And I think that's all you can really ask for. And you just got to keep producing every year. Here's my, here's my great question. I love to ask because you're so proud as you should be of your product. Would you ever do a screw top? You know what? I would, I would. And the reason I can't tell you like, how many really good winemakers answered the same, that question the same way. It's amazing. So here's, here's the reason. And when I first met Dan Costa, my best friend, uh, who actually married me, in 2015 and i'm marrying him in june uh yeah we that no, was it wasn't a bet. We just like we're that good of friends we and we both got wow. he was ordained like whatever and i got ordained to do it but yeah. that's how good of friends we are but when i first met dan he was like if you ever ever put a screw top on a <laughs> bottle of wine he goes we're not <laughs> friends anymore he goes you're you're you know this the integrity to wine and the winemaking process and blah, 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 blah. So then fast forward and he leaves Costa Brown and he sells Costa Brown. He starts doing his all in alley project and he's, you know, screw capping Chardonnay, screw capping Rosé. Yeah. Um, and I asked him, I'm like, you know, what, what happened? He goes, well, you know, he goes, one, it's cheaper, which it is for Amen. production. And two, it totally keeps the integrity of wine because, no air can get in. With corks, if there's a flaw in the cork, air can get in. And then you get people calling you going, hey, I got a corked bottle. So I would do it. I wouldn't do it with our single vineyard stuff or our cab. I would do it if we decide to like do a rosé or a you know cab blend or something, like something on the lower end, like – you know, a $40 bottle of cab blend or whatever, or a, or a rosé. I would do it with that. I think even Bordeaux winemakers, Bordeaux will be the last place on earth oh that God. does screw top. But I think someday they will have to because climate change, first, first of all, you, it, the cork is either going to run out or it's yes. going to be so darned expensive, so darned expensive it won't make sense anymore. I mean, it's, yeah, you're right. Because like I've watched videos and documentaries on like cork trees. Yeah. And like they, they're not going to last forever. And that's not an easy process. Uh, so they will be the last. Um, but you know what? I'm, I'm just it wrapping my head purpose. about I'm wrapping my head around a 19, about a 2030 <laughs> Chateau Margaux with a screw top. I'm just trying to just trying to get that concept going. Yeah, it, 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 it's just <laughs> not going to it's not going to float. But um, yeah. yeah, it's it's weird. And, you know, I'm, I'm still waiting to take my first trip, Ted, to to France for wine country and Burgundy and Bordeaux. And I can't wait. I can't wait to do it. Richie, we'll talk. I, I don't want to, I've already told one story, but I went to Margot about five years ago and we'll talk offline about it. But it's, yeah. it's, I just tell you this, they have a Cooper. Yeah. Chateau Margot employs a Cooper. A, a Cooper. Wow. He has his workspace. I have a video on my phone of it. And he, they pay him as a full-time job to make about 50 barrels a year. That's what wow. he can by hand from scratch. He makes 50 oat barrels for them. No one else. Um, Ted, who, I, who else in the world has that? Ted, just give NBC a heads up. I can fake talking about tennis 
<laughs> to get over there. <laughs> Look at that forehand. Yeah. <laughs> you would be fantastic, Tennis. Yeah, I would like to see oh, that. I love it. That's another you podcast for another day. That second path. And so before we stop, though, I do it because I touched on this at the beginning. 20 years ago, Richard Rillia hit 324, he had 206 hits, and 37 home runs. And I, I'm, I'm just blown away when I look back on the uh, baseball reference site today, and I said, it's 20 years ago. That feels like it was yesterday. But, but, well, I'll tell you, Ted, I, it, it didn't really hit me that it was 20 years ago until you said that when we were on. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I guess it was, you know. And, um, you know, it's such great memories of playing the game. Uh, playing with the guys I played with. And, and, you know, I mean, you were there the first, I think, five years of my career at Candlestick, I think. Yeah, I was there through, um, I was there for 2001, so. Yeah, 2000, yeah, yeah, so you, yeah, I forgot the Mirabelli story. Yes, you lost the case but of here, one. But. So, so here's here's a memory, very quick. So 9-11 happened, and the, Gi- oh, and yeah. the Giants were in Houston. And so everybody was stuck. Was, and I remember vividly, because on 9-12, the team got to work out in the ballpark in Houston. And everybody, even us knucklehead announcers, had to go because security was keeping everybody together. And I was standing mm-hmm. behind the batting cage during batting practice with you and J.T. Snow. And number 25 was hitting balls off girders in the ballpark. Oh, and it was batting practice. I'm saying, I don't care. Human beings were not supposed to hit baseballs. <laughs> and I just remember you two guys just laugh. Yeah. You and J.T. Snow, great baseball players, laughing out loud at the absurdity of where this guy <laughs> was was hitting balls, which, of course, was the story of, of all of 2001. Yeah, he was hitting balls to part of the ballpark that they never imagined balls getting hit to. You know, Barry was just an extreme talent. Um, yeah, just – and the knowledge he had – Yeah was just amazing and to play with that guy for i think all in all i think i played with him for nine years i don't know how many people actually played with him more than i did as a teammate and and i I always got along with the guy i you know he was just amazing to watch and that 2001 season you know granted again like i got moved to hit in front of him that year um, because Dusty Baker, the manager, said, you're a good fastball hitter. You're the best fastball hitter we have on this team, and I want you in front of Barry because you're going to get a lot of fastballs. And I was like, why are you moving me? I had two good years, like hitting seventh. Leave me alone. And he's like, just go be you. Don't change anything. Just hit second, whatever. And I did it, and it ended up you know, being the best year of my career. Yeah. Um, did it help hitting in front of him? Absolutely. But like, was it? Like just because I hit in front of him, no. I just had one of those years where I had no injuries. I don't. I didn't. I never went two games without a hit um, that season. Um, you know, and to be honest, like I mean, we went back to back that year. He hit seventy three. I hit thirty seven. So Ted, here's a. I'm going to give Ashley you two. Here's a trivia question to win some drinks out at a bar whenever the world gets back to normal. Adam, you two. Um, Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle have the most home runs by teammates ever, all time, with 115. 15, Who's yeah. second on the list? Yeah. 110. Yeah. Wow. That's, That's good. I never thought of it. As soon as you said it, you're right. Yeah. And if we didn't play in that ballpark, I probably would have had a couple more. So. <laughs> but um, but, how, about, what? It but was, how about this? Richie hits 37 home runs, and that's only half of the league leader. <laughs> Whoever yeah. thought. I mean, is that yeah. crazy? I know. And I like, I had the best year of my life and I'm like, this is one of the best years I felt like ever for a shortstop. I hit 324, 37 homers, 97 RBIs, 115 runs or something. I had, I led the league in hits and I, I like, I finished 12th in MVP vote. (laughs) I was like, man, give me, at least give me the top 10, man. But um, but you know what? Listen, it was it was a great year, and the nine eleven thing, Ted. You're right. It it hit me hard because I grew up in New York, and my mom worked in the World Trade Center forever, and I couldn't track my my at the time she wasn't working there; she was working somewhere else. But she had to take the train through the Trade Center every day, and I couldn't track my family down for two days, 
And at that, at that point, I just had a newborn for three weeks old. I couldn't track my family down. I was our player rep and I was on the, uh, the board of the union. So we're trying to, I'm trying to track my family down, make sure my, my, my baby's okay. And at the same time, trying to figure out when are we going to go back and play again? When are we going to get home? When are we going to do this? It was a very trying time. Um, I'll never forget it. Um, for good and bad reasons. Yeah. But, um, it was a really, really tumultuous end of the season that year for us. But again, career wise, it was a great year. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I have a lot of great memories and I, and I'm glad you brought up it's 20 years because I had, yeah, I don't think of it that way. I just, I, again, I felt like it was yesterday, but you know what, at some point this year, I'm going to grab some friends together and celebrate that year because it was a great year. Well, can you know? Ashley, I think we should celebrate we'll Red Stitch, right? Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm there to celebrate you all the time, Rich, and this wine. It's absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you guys. And I, I really do appreciate the opportunity to be on here with you guys. And I, I wish you guys the best of luck. And uh, if there's any way I could help you guys in the future moving forward, please do not hesitate to ask. So well, thank, thank you. you guys.